I'm Tom Morello, host of Maximum Firepower. A weekly podcast focusing on the music, the moments, and the movements that have shaped my worldview and left an indelible mark on me as an artist and activist. Correct with Maximum Firepower. For you and me. This is Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. I'm Tom Morello, and this is Maximum Firepower. It is an honor to have the great Ralph Nader on my show. Proud to call Ralph a friend. He is regularly named as one of the 100 most influential Americans of all time. He has out a new book called How the Rats Vetoed Congress. Ralph Nader, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Tom. So for some of our listeners who may not know that Ralph Nader's efforts are directly credited with the passage of several landmark pieces of consumer protection legislation, including the Clean Water Act, the Freedom of Information Act, the Product Safety Act, among others. But it really all started with uh, his 1965 book, Unsafe at Any Speed. Ralph, for people who may not be familiar with, who may take for granted a lot of these consumer protections uh, that they and their families have enjoyed for decades, take us back to unsafe at any speed. What was that book about, and why was it sort of a landmark moment in um, consumer advocacy? Well, you know, growing up in New England in those days, Tom, people lost a lot of friends in motor vehicle crashes, injuries, quadriplegic, paraplegic, five times more dangerous per hundred million vehicle miles. And I used to hitchhike a lot because I, I was bored, you know, taking buses and trains. So I would hit the road and I'd hitchhike uh, all over the country, uh, as well as New England. And, uh, you know, people picking me up would come to the scene of a crash before the emergency or the police got there. Mm. And it was pretty grisly. I mean, you know, severed limbs, screams, groans, fire. And I began to see that these people would be thrown from their cars, the doors would pop open, the fuel tank would rupture, the steering shaft would come back and their heads would hit sharp edges on the metal dash panel. So when I got to law school at Harvard, I decided to look into it, and I wrote a third-year paper, and I found out that there was no regulation of the auto industry. They could do whatever they want. The bosses in Detroit built a pile of junk, and they smeared it with styling changes and horsepower. People could get killed in 10-mile-an-hour collisions with their head unrestrained by seatbelts, uh, in shoulder harnesses right into a sharp edge on the dash panel. And so I wrote this paper and showed how all kinds of simple things can be put in cars, some of them going back to ancient Rome, like the ancient Roman chariots had padded the chariots. The seatbelts were used by World War I pilots. All this was old stuff, stronger door latches, collapsible steering columns, side protection, rollover protection, head restraints. So I wrote a book, Unsafe at Any Speed, and General Motors got wind of it, and they hired a private detective firm, and they trailed me all over the country, and they made one mistake. They trailed me to the U.S. Senate office building. I was slated to testify, <laughs> and that is a federal crime. You know, you obstruct someone from testifying. The funny thing is that the detective that was tailing me, he got through the building, and he lost me. So he went to the cop and he said, have you seen somebody this high, etc.?" cetera? <laughs> um, and the cop said, what are you doing? <laughs> and, and the detective said, well, we, we, we want to. He was muttering 
Yes. And, uh, so that, that unraveled the whole thing. There was big Senate hearing, all kinds of television, radio, press, and it turned out that GM was trying to get dirt on me. It just boomeranged, and we got the motor vehicle and highway safety laws through in record time. The, the, the hearing on GM's detective caper was in March, and the bills were passed and signed by President Lyndon Johnson in September. Today, it takes months, years, you know, to get anything done. And uh, how did it happen? Well, I didn't just go around, you know, marching, demonstrating. You focus on the venue that's going to make the decision. It could be Congress. It could be a state legislature. That's why this book, The Day the Rats Veto Congress, it's designed to make you laugh yourself seriously. And it shows how the people, with a lot less effort, can take control of Congress from the 1500 corporations that dominate so many of the 535 members and turn them against the people. So I really began to focus on the Congress. And I couldn't imagine all the anti-war marches and rallies. Some of them were in Washington, but very few of them uh, of other environmental, labor, consumer, civil rights, civil liberties. They sort of expend their energy in their marches into the ether on a weekend, San Francisco, Miami, Boston, wherever, but they don't focus on the one institution that could win for them. And the one institution has enormous power under our Constitution. It has the power to stop war, declare war, spend money, tax money, investigate, subpoena people. It's the U.S. Congress. I mean, you just ask your listeners what changes they want to make in America. Universal health care, a living wage, clean environment, climate issues, most likely has to go through Congress. And that's why the corporations swarm Congress to make sure it doesn't go through Congress. And back home, we're spinning our wheels, getting discouraged and demoralized and exaggerating the, the corporate power. And nothing happens. And things just get worse. Half the people in this country are poor. You know, they make less than 50000 with four deductions. They have to support a family or dependents. Three, 400,000 people die every year because of preventable problems in hospitals, according to the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. you got tens of millions of people working at a poverty wage, less than wages in 1968, adjusted forward to inflation. But what are we waiting for? So it's all Congress, Congress, Congress. You build Congress watchdog groups and make Congress a hobby. You know, people have hobbies. They they spend three to five hundred hours a year in a hobby, maybe five hundred bucks. They they collect uh, vinyl records. They collect coins. So why not just a, a fraction of one percent in congressional districts having a Congress hobby? It's a lot of fun making these guys squirm. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you've had the, you've had them squirming for decades, and and you've really uh, answered my next question: was what are the lessons from unsafe at any speed? And it is to uh, attack the problem at the root. That's right. You you document the problem, you publicize the problem. In those days, the media gave it pretty good coverage, and so people began to say, "What? You mean they don't recall cars when my car's got a defect and I don't know about it?" And they got angry, and they began to call their members of Congress. In the meantime, we were working on Congress, getting hearings, getting key chairs like Chairman Warren Magnuson from Seattle, Senator Ribicoff from Connecticut, and we'd uh, touch base with uh, a dozen reporters so they knew who we were. We made sure our 
demands were accurate, like federal regulations setting safety standards for better brakes, tires, handling, uh, safety standards for protecting people when they're in crashes, seatbelts, airbags. And it was done. I mean, that's the formula. The formula is not just to have rallies and marches that go nowhere. That energy's got a zero across the country right on Capitol Hill. They're the ones who've got the power, and it's our power. We the people, as the preamble of the Constitution, as you know, it isn't we the corporation or we the Congress. It's we the people, and we give Congress the power that they use against us in return for campaign cash from Wall Street and all the big corporations, and we got to turn it around. It's so easy that when I talk about it, people don't even believe it. So I had to write a book called Breaking Through Power. It's easier than we think. I'm giving all kinds of examples where a handful of people representing majority public opinion, knowing what they're talking about, and putting the work days in, and you'd be surprised what you can turn around. So I give examples in this little book about how just a few people began turning the water pollution issue, the air pollution issue, more focus on food labeling, nutritious food. To this day, it's only a handful of people, but the key is they got to know what they're talking about. They got a strategy on the arena where the decision is made, say Congress or Department of Interior or Department of Agriculture, and representing public opinion. And you can build public opinion. The problem is the media is not reporting the civic activity the way it used to. So we've got to focus on the media. It's not enough just to have your own website or podcast, bless they are. We still have to get the major newspapers magazines, television, radio together. So the other book I wrote was, it's very simple. It was reflecting that conservatives and liberals agree on a lot, but the media and the politicians, they like to polarize them. So they disagree on a number of things, gun control, abortion, uh, school prayer. But look what they agree on. I put this uh, in a book that that was uh, talked about the left-right alliance. They agree on a living wage. Majorities agree on universal health care. They agree on a different kind of tax system, heightening the taxes on the global corporations who get away with minimal taxes. They agree on rebuilding the communities, public works. You know, they don't like potholes. They don't like contaminated drinking water. They don't like uh, deteriorating sewage systems. They like public transit, libraries, uh, the arts. People want Juvenile justice reform. In fact, 15 state legislatures passed them with uh, Republican-Democrat support. So in this book called Unstoppable, the uh, coming alliance, left-right alliance to dismantle the corporate state, I came up with 24 major areas, tax, energy, solar energy, huge support for solar, renewable energy, huge support to get out of these endless wars. Huge support to cut the waste and corruption in the military-industrial complex budget. Huge support against corporate welfare, handouts, giveaways, bailouts of Wall Street, the taxpayer-funded stadiums and arenas. Because uh, people don't read much anymore, I had to do fiction. I wrote this fable, basically called The Day the Rats Vetoed Congress, and it turned out that the rats found their way up the toilets in Congress, <laughs> all kinds of frantic, crazed, running around, screaming senators, representatives, and they never stopped. And they found all kinds of food because 
they, they have all these parties on Capitol Hill where they have food and the crumbs and, and garbage, and they put Congress in a complete tizzy. And so some people around the country are watching this on TV, and they're saying, look what the rats are doing to Congress. We can do the same thing. We can put them in a tizzy and make them perform of buying for the people. So it's really a handbook. It gives you exactly how people can take control of Congress. And it really never amounts to more than 1%. Two and a half million people in 435 districts representing majority opinion. People are fed up with politicians, uh, and regardless of their labels. Uh, and they start doing their homework. So these politicians start trying to sweet-talk them, using slogans, trying to get in their heads, hitting people against other people. It doesn't work because these guys really know what they're talking about. And they mobilize from the grassroots, and then they surround the Congress 24 hours a day. Hundreds of thousands of people come in and out of the city. And then they have the, their friends in Congress. There's always about 20% of the members of Congress who are really good. And they start putting the legislation in that should have been passed in 1900. Mm -hmm. uh, and this roar comes up, you know, and they're inside the Congress, the lawmakers, and they hear this roar every time there's a vote, this gigantic roar. <laughs> I'm Tom Morello. This is Maximum Firepower. My guest today is Ralph Nader. One of the things that we harp on here on Maximum Firepower quite often is that history is not something that happens. History is something that you make. And I think it's an important uh, lesson to reiterate is that whenever change happens, progressive, radical, or even revolutionary change, it is caused by people no different than anyone listening to this. People who have had no more power, influence, intelligence, creativity, or courage than anyone right now. And it's like there's this sort of idea that it's daunting. It's much easier to just sort of spend your life on Instagram and video games and this, that, and other because it seems like this is this monolithic structure that can't be cracked. Well, you've cracked it multiple times, uh, you know, throughout, throughout and, the and land. His, historically, you're absolutely right. It all starts with a couple people. That's right. Uh, the tiny party of, that opposed slavery in 1840, a small number of people, the people who started uh, pushing for the women's right to vote, for labor against the big banks and, and the railroad companies all started with a handful of people. You know, we call them ordinary people who did extraordinary things. They didn't sit mm. around giving up. That's why I want people to really get this book It's called The Day That Rats Vetoed Congress. And you can go to ratsreformcongress.org and click the link right below the cover of the book. And it's from Fantagraphics. You know, that's a very famous outfit in Seattle that does, does graphic novels and so mm -hmm. forth. Yep. They're really yep. cool, cool people. Mm -hmm. And you can get this at Start a Reading Circle. You'll, you'll see. It's a short book. By the time you're finished, you're like the old Popeye who just ate spinach, you know? Biceps <laughs> start pumping, <laughs> pumping muscles. And you start saying, hey, let's get a letterhead going. Let's get the Congress Watchdog Group and get some people from different walks of life and backgrounds, and then demand the meetings with your senators and representatives. Tom, people are so asleep in this country, they're so apathetic, that if 500 people put a, their names on a petition, legible, their occupation, their email, they get a senator to come to their meeting. A senator. Mm -hmm. 300 people will get a representative. Mm -hmm. And then when you eyeball them, there's nobody between you and the 535 people that have all your power under the Constitution you've given them without accountability. 
so they can sell it to Wall Street for corporate cash. And you've got them right there. No, no flax, no intermediaries. No, I'll call you back. No voicemail. And so in, in this book, uh, we've got the, what we call the summons, where they, 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 the people summon their representatives back to town hall meetings, could be in a high school auditorium, where they basically tell them what they want done when they go back to Washington. And they're so well informed that the senator's representatives can't BS them. They can't uh, sweet talk them. And, and uh, it'll change the whole country. And the, mm-hmm. you change our country, you begin to change the world. Uh, now, I don't know if I've told you this, Ralph, but for two years I worked as the scheduling secretary for Senator Alan Cranston. It was my day job while I was pursuing my rock and roll dreams when I first moved to Hollywood in 1986. And I was, you know, it was really the only, it wasn't that I had any desire to enter the world of electoral politics. It was like the one job that my Harvard social studies degree could get me. They wouldn't hire me to sell bongs and heavy metal t-shirts on Hollywood Boulevard, but they would hire me to to schedule uh, appointments for the center. But I got to see how the sausage was made up close. And while Senator Cranston was on the progressive side of a lot of issues, my job as his scheduler was to basically schedule nonstop meetings with rich dudes, and he asked them for money. The end. Like, that was like the schedule. <laughs> At the time, I would go to like a hotel and I'd line up a bank of pay. I would commandeer a bank of pay phones and I'd call rich guy number one and say, Yo, can you hold for Senator Cranston? And he would get on and he'd sweet talk him and twist the arm while nine other phones they were waiting to go down the line. Now, of course, as you know, none of that money comes for free. And it's the antithesis of what you're describing as people power. It was this kind of like the, the back and forth bridge, you know, between the Senate and the corporate elite, the corporate oligarchy uh, that were the, the real decision makers. And within that, there was no town hall meeting to interrupt it. What an inside view you had. Boy, I would have salivated to get an inside view like that. Yeah. Because you know what they do? They work a three-day week in Congress. That's when they're not in recess. They come in Tuesday morning or Monday night, and they leave Thursday afternoon or Thursday evening. And a third of the time, they're walking across the street to various hotels and office buildings where they dial for dollars. Yes. sit down, and their scheduler, like you did, to tell them who to call, what kind of little names. You know, oh, I hear Josie graduated from high school. I'll congratulate her. <laughs> Next. Yeah. It's so demeaning. And the tragedy is they have the power to change the whole system. They can clean up the whole system. They're the Congress. Yeah. They, they revel in corrupting themselves. Mm-hmm. But there are yeah. people, you know, Bernie Sanders, for example, Elizabeth Warren, there's some really good people trying to struggle. And Bernie Sanders, you know, until he ran for president in 2000, in 2016, it was all believed you couldn't raise money except from the fat cats and the PACs. And he raised over $200 million average contribution, 27 bucks over the Internet. So that's another opportunity for people not to be discouraged. People now can run for office and raise money over the Internet in small denominations. So given your experience as a four-time presidential candidate, how would you recommend, and, and the subsequent criticism that you've sometimes received as you know, siphoning votes away from the, the less horrific uh, party on, in whatever election cycle that we're in, how would you recommend, uh, first of all, to talk about that experience, and how in 2021 uh, would you recommend confronting the monolithic two-party corporate-controlled electoral system? 
Well, first of all, I believe in third and fourth and fifth parties. I believe in more voices and choices. The First Amendment is at stake here, because when you run for office, you use the freedom of speech, freedom to petition your government, and freedom to assemble the people around your issues. So anytime people hear the two parties saying to the third party, shut up, don't run, drop out, they're basically saying, don't speak. So the two parties don't own the voters. They have to earn the voters. They've gotten a two-party duopoly. They rigged the system against any kind of competition. But when I ran on the Green Party, we put forward issues, Tom, that had majoritarian support that were off the table from both the Republicans and Democrats. They weren't talking about living wage. They weren't talking about unions. They weren't talking about universal health care. You know, I'm going all over the country. I went to every 50 states. They went to about 35 states. Like the Democrats wouldn't go into the red states of Texas or Alabama, and Republicans wouldn't campaign in Massachusetts or California. That was disrespectful. So we do have to have better access to the ballot laws for third and fourth, fifth parties, independent candidates. Uh, And second, uh, on the the two-party domination, which is with us, it's not going to go away soon, we got to mobilize and demand that the candidates come to our town meetings where we poll them. We basically say, here are 10 major issues. Where are you on them? We're going to grade you and we're going to mobilize and and we're going to follow you everywhere on your campaign trail to make sure that you don't BS the people, that you don't hide your record, that you don't make promises you're going to break. And the other thing that we can do is between elections, Tom, because when we got unanimous support for the auto safety bill in the Congress, you imagine unanimous. When it started out, we, could, we were told we couldn't get one vote. What? Regulate General Motors? Ford? Chrysler? Forget it. it. It was because we worked on them between the elections. And so we shouldn't just focus on elections. You've got to work on them between the elections. That's when they're even more vulnerable. And that's when they're afraid of primary challenges and the like. And that's exactly what this book is about, this fable, The Day the Rats Vetoed Congress, which you can get by going to ratsreformcongress.org. I mean, if you think I'm desperate enough that I have to resort to a fable, trust me, (laughs) this has got real strategy, real facts, real ways for you to become powerful vis-a-vis your senators, representatives, and mobilize. One of the themes of the book is when you mobilize the people, Go forward on all kinds of changes. Don't just say, well, uh, we're just going to put our energy on one change, universal health care, because Congress is more likely to react when it's bombarded by all kinds of reforms, pushed by all kinds of uh, popular support, and you, you get things done really fast, just like we got the auto safety bill done fast. We got the Environmental Protection Agency and the Occupational Safety Health Agency fast, and that's what this book is all about all the long overdue changes, redirections for our country, empowering the people, better livelihoods, better opportunity, health, safety, peace in the world. You got to do it all at once. Justice is a seamless web. 
Uh, well, Ralph Nader, thank you so much. I really, it is, uh, it is inspiring to hear you talk, <laughs> uh, as it has been over the course of the, the last decades. It's, uh, I'm proud to call you a friend, and thank you for your, con thank you for your service and for your continued uh, good work. And hopefully, uh, anybody who's listening who's not familiar with uh, Ralph Nader's story, please check it out and become a, one of Nader's Raiders. And check out, uh, go to RatsReformCongress.org and. Start getting to work. Ralph, a real it's pleasure. Like, Tom, thank you for your work and your connecting music with social justice and inspiring people. And and by the way, listeners, it has already happened in Maui, uh, Hawaii. Uh, for 120 years, corporations ruled Maui. They controlled the land, the water, the workers. And in 2018 and 2020, the people mobilized and replaced 14 out of 16 members of the county legislature, and now the people are ruling Maui. You can go to reclaimparadise.org, and you'll see how they did it and how you can do it. Oh, that's awesome, Ralph. Thank you so much again. I have a great holiday season. I hope I'm able to see you in person at some time in the not-too-distant future. But keep up the good work, and we, we love and respect you. Many, many thanks, Tom. Thank your listeners. I hope we can do it again. Okay, cheers. Let foes of justice tremble. This has been Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. Hear this episode again or listen to past shows right now on the SiriusXM app. Search Maximum Firepower.